It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. The 14th of November. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11 a.m. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. We'll begin today with the Garda operation in the Drogheda area to deal with the guns, the drugs and the dealers who have been wreaking havoc in the local community since a feud between two gangs erupted 18 months ago. The place is awash with drugs which fuel the violence, the killings and the attempted killings. It's been a significant week for Garda in clamping down on the drugs trade, culminating yesterday in court in Dundee. Casey O'Reardon was in the district court for us and Casey, the guards say that the busts this week have resulted from intelligence gathering. Well, Guardian and Drogheda at the moment are running Operation Stratus. It's an intelligence-led operation and it was set up well over a year ago in response to the ongoing gang feud in the town. So on Monday afternoon, Gardaí intercepted a vehicle at the Denor Road Industrial Station. In the boot, they found 20 kilos of cocaine. They've estimated that to be worth 1.4 million euros, so quite a significant find. Uh, Carl Dennis was in the vehicle at the time, and he was arrested and brought to the local Garda station. And I suppose most people have seen that cocaine, uh, presuming it is cocaine, on television. Uh, And uh, it's uh, the equivalent of a a suitcase worth 20 kilos uh, would be a normal suitcase. And it's a lot of cocaine, Uh, certainly a lot of cocaine uh, from the gang's point of view because of the value of it. One and a half million euro, uh, that's not going to go down well with the gangs. And uh, because of the value of it as well, it's a very serious offence. So there was a a man in front of the courts yesterday and... uh, you were in court to, to see what happened. What can you tell us? Yes, yeah, so this man's name is Carl Dennis. He's 29 years old and he lives in Elmwood Close in Termin Abbey on the north side of Drogheda. Um, and we, we don't know much about him at the moment, but I do know that, you know, if he isn't released, he wasn't released on bail yesterday and he's due to appear before Cloverhill Court next Tuesday and, and if, if for a bail hearing. And if that doesn't go in his favour, he'll actually likely spend his 30th birthday in custody as, as it's his birthday early next month. And, and we should say as well, mm. after Carl Dennis was arrested on Monday and brought to the local Garda station, uh, a follow-up search at his home in Elmwood Close was, was carried out and 25,000 euro worth of cannabis was also found. So he appeared in court um, uh, uh, yesterday in charges relating to both uh, those seizures. And there's four charges in total? Yes, there is. So, um, 
so uh, Carlos, he's facing four charges, as he said. So possession of cocaine, possession of cocaine for the purpose of sale or supply, possession of cannabis and possession of cannabis for the sale, uh, for the purpose of sale or supply. So Garda Carl Mannion gave the details of arrest, charge and caution. We were told the accused just remained silent when those charges were put to him. Um, Garda said yesterday they were objecting to bail, but, but it was... Um, Mr. Dennis's solicitor, Eleanor Kelly, said there would be actually no bail application at this stage mm. and that they would make one at the next stage when they were in a better position. Uh, she applied for legal aid for the accused, who she said was in receipt of a social welfare allowance of €201 Euro a week. So Judge Aaron McKiernan then remanding Mr. Dennis in custody to appear at Cloverhill District Court next Tuesday. OK, and uh, this is somebody Gardaí say was in possession of something worth €1.5 million Euro looking for legal aid. That in itself uh, may raise questions for some people listening to us uh, this morning. Uh, quite often uh, people go before a judge and uh, they're advised to wear a suit, uh, but it, it seems uh, that Carl Dennis uh, was casual in his appearance. Uh, did he uh, appear casual or stressed to you when he was in the dock? I, I would say his manner would be quite indifferent. I, I couldn't kind of gauge any emotion of him, you know, good, bad or indifferent. Uh, he was dressed, I would describe maybe smart, casual, wearing a, a woolen jumper, a cream woolen jumper, almost like an iron jumper and a pair of blue jeans. And were there family or supporters there for him? Not, not that we were made aware of. He appeared to, um, you know, obviously the courthouse in Dundalk is a very busy, uh, kind of very busy scene in general. So the courthouse was packed, but I couldn't tell you for certain if there was any support there for Mr. Dennis. Okay, but a, a lot of interest in this, uh, not just locally, uh, but nationally. Uh, and undoubtedly, uh, there will be uh, further uh, developments in the story, because as you say, it's part of an ongoing Garda intelligence-led operation. Yeah, this operation has been ongoing for well over a year now and Gardaí on Monday were saying that there, there'll be no let-up in this operation, that these are very significant fines and they, and they do think it will interrupt the drug trade in Drogheda and the wider northeast. but there'll be no let-up and that they will continue to try and bring this feud under control. Thanks, Casey. Casey O'Reardon, who was in Dundalk District Court yesterday, now staying with policing matters along the border and how executives of Quinn Industrial Holdings have been let down by Angarda Siakana. That was a view that was expressed by Minister Michael Darcy on the week in politics. The GRA have taken exception to those comments and are asking the Taoiseach to act against them. Let's uh, hear why. We're joined by Garda Liam Hennessy, GRA representative for the Meath Division. Good morning to you and thanks for joining us. Uh, what do you want the Taoiseach to do in respect of the Minister? Well, we in the GRA feel the comments are unfair and unwarranted and we want the Taoiseach to take action as we've requested an apology from the Minister three days ago and um, at the moment he has made no response, no no satisfactory response. Is he right to suggest that the executives of QIH have been let down? Um, No, I don't think he is. Um, Gardaí up there on the border are dealing with a very difficult situation caused by dangerous people. Um, he's, he's, he's wrong to direct, direct this at Angarda Siakana because he, in doing so he appears to absolve people who um, are responsible for funding. And um, well, I suppose that's my question. Have the executives been let down at all or is it that they've been let down by somebody other than Angarda Siakana? Well, we don't feel that um, the Gardaí on the ground have let them down. They're, they're, they're doing their best 
well, in, in what is a very difficult situation with substandard resources. But how long is this going on now? Uh, I mean, uh, these are normal business people going about uh, their daily lives, uh, peaceful, ordinary, law-abiding people uh, who have had to endure uh, one attack after another, it seems, over a very long period of time. And we agree there. It's it's a very difficult situation. But it, it has been reported earlier this week that Gardaí on the ground have investigated all incidents and, and files have been sent to the DPP. But without success. Uh, I mean, uh, we've uh, had no uh, prosecutions in relation to this, and it's some seven years on, isn't it? Uh, and uh, very recently then we had the very high-profile case of Kevin Lunny, which uh, drew national attention and put pressure on politicians and on, on Garda Siakana. Uh, there's been a, a number of raids, uh, not just in this jurisdiction, but also in Northern Ireland and uh, across the UK. Uh, there has been some arrests. Uh, one of uh, the key players in this is said to have died and uh, a number of rests this morning. But is that coincidental after all of this time that when real focus is put on it, uh, real resource and real effort is given to it by the policing force in this country? Well, uh, you can link it to the extra 40 Gardaí and the armed response unit that's now been set up in Cavan Town. And, and that, in effect, we would we would welcome those, those responses Um and, and you could you could link those two together. So to suggest that it, it, it's a failure on the Garda's part is simply wrong. And uh, the minister, you say, needs uh, to apologise for that. Uh, the minister doesn't seem willing to do it. So what do you expect the Taoiseach to do? We're asking him to... to already, the Minister for Justice and the Garda Commissioner have distanced themselves from the minister's comments. And we're merely asking the Taoiseach to take action. And what does that mean, can you tell us? Well, I, I couldn't comment in, in relation to what the Taoiseach may or may not do, but um, Gardaí on the ground and the GRA feel that um, the Minister's response to date is not good enough. OK, but what would satisfy you? If uh, you want the Taoiseach uh, to take action, uh, he could come out and say, sure, that was awful. Uh, would that be enough? No. We, no. We, so, we, so what do you mean by action? Three days ago, we asked for an apology from the Minister, and uh, we, we would still look for an apology from him. And is it that the GRA are saying that if the Minister doesn't apologise, if the Taoiseach can't get an apology from the Minister, that it's the GRA's position that the Minister's position is no longer tenable? Or, or what is it that you're saying when you call for action? That's not our position. Our position is that we're looking for an apology and heretofore it hasn't happened and we're asking for the Taoiseach to take action. And if the Taoiseach can't force an apology, uh, what then? I, 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 I can't answer you that now. Okay. We'll leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Garda Liam Hennessy, GRA representative for the Meath Division. Now, as you know, Lisa Smith, uh, the former member of uh, the Defence Forces Air Corps member, is uh, what's called an ISIS bride uh, had uh, gone to live in Syria and uh, has been living under Islamic State for some time. She's now in Turkey uh, where she's been detained uh, but is set to be deported and to return home to Dundalk. Yesterday we heard uh, from independent TD Peter Fitzpatrick who told us that Lisa Smith has been in contact with her family and her family have told him that she wants to return home. She expects when she comes home that she is going to be detained and uh, she, she, she would 
would like maybe her child to be to, to be with her family and dog. Like as, as she said, it was uh, she wants an opportunity to to give her side of the story. And if her side of the story is, is that uh, she 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 done criminal activities or she was supporting the at the moment, is she is going to be in very very serious trouble. And uh, as I said, it's up it's up to her. And and like at the moment, she's under the responsibility of the Department of Foreign Affairs. The fact that she's in Turkey, mm. that when she comes home here, she'd be under the uh, the guard on the Department of Justice. And as I said, yeah, she, she she will give she will be given an opportunity. That's Peter Fitzpatrick, Independent TD, telling us about Lisa's, Lisa Smith's wishes to come home to Dundalk. Yesterday, Marie Kearns was in Dundalk and she asked local people how they felt about her coming home. Well, it's a very hard one. Because she has the child, I think she should be allowed. But to me, if she hadn't the child, I wouldn't think she should be allowed back in. She knew what she was doing. You know, she just she knew what she, where she was going. I, I, I certainly don't think the government should be funding her return home. She was able to find her own way out there. She should be able to find her own way back to the dock. I have no problem her coming back but uh, she'll have to make clear that her that life is over now and she wants to go back into the mainstream society. That's what I, that'd be my opinion anyway. Well I think she should get a hearing. You know she got herself into a situation that um, and then couldn't get out of it like another probably with all the Islamic religious beliefs and all that and she couldn't get out of it as things happen as they did, I think she should get a fair hearing on it and clear the air a bit, like, you know. And, like, because of our... Like, she had a very high-profile job in the, in the army, yeah, taking care of her T-shirt at the time and all that sort of stuff. So she should get a fair hearing, I think. Well, I think she should be allowed back, but um, definitely restrictions involved. Um, whether she should be prosecuted or not is another thing. But um, definitely an eye needs to be kept. So you'd have no objections to her living now in Dundalk? No, no, no. I don't. I don't see why. No, she should not be allowed to come back to Ireland. Lisa knows what she wants to do there, and she knows what the country is about. So she plans to go, and she should face the the, the punishment for that. If she comes in, we don't know what she has gone there to learn. We don't know what she has been taught there. We don't know when she comes if she's going to recruit people into ISIS young girls. Ireland is a country with a lot of issues with suicide. We don't want more suicide in Ireland. Let us stay. And what about her daughter? It's unfortunate. I'm a Christian. I'm not a Muslim. And the Bible says the punishment of a parents will be punished upon four generations. It's unfortunate for that little child. But she will need to face whatever her mother has to face. If they want to bring the child here, if the parents can bring, fine. If she can be separated, if she wants to, I, I wouldn't say anything about that. But for her, let her face the consequences. I'm so sorry about it. Well, no, I think it's a very controversial subject. Uh, it's a motive. I think people will have either one extreme or the other. You're asking me my own opinion. Uh, I think she did very wrong. I don't think she's innocent by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I don't see why we should be paying the money that people are saying it's going to take to mind her and look after her, monitor her. So I'm not, I'm not for Lisa Smith. I'm not for her coming back here. Um, I don't see why my hard-earned few bob over the years should go to protect her when there's so many other requirements in the country which might be more beneficial to people who, were, who served the country well because, in my opinion, she didn't. Would you be worried that she would still pose a threat? Uh, yes, without a shadow of a doubt. She might say she won't, she doesn't or she won't, but there's always the danger, and the danger is highest or higher 
with somebody who's come through what she's come through. That's just my opinion, not founded on any knowledge or anything else, but yes, I would be concerned. Uh, well, I'll just say that I think that um, she'll get grief when she comes back, and I think that um, the ordinary people pass no remarks, the good living people don't know, but I think that the ruffians maybe give her a bit of a hard time. I wouldn't feel threatened at all, and I think she made, I'm not saying a wrong decision, but I just think that she didn't do the right thing. Well, I think that, you know, obviously she made her own decisions um, for her, her own lifestyle, but I think maybe her, her child deserves a chance. Whatever about herself, but her child definitely deserves a chance. And would you feel nervous about someone that maybe is a, a supporter of the Islamic State being let back into the country? Um, well, I don't really know. I'm sure there's lots of supporters already in the country that we're just not were aware of. Um, and I think she'll be closely watched in any case. I thought she not must be deported here to Ireland from Turkey. Because it's a very dangerous person, and I thought it is my opinion is don't don't uh, see in the future. I think they should keep away. Or does if they will bring here, put in the jail like for 20, 25 years? That just my opinion. And what about her daughter? Sorry. Her daughter is only two. I'm not sure about daughter. I think uh, so, some families here or relation to this woman they can keep this daughter but I'm not sure it's right or wrong De- depends of which education she will get here in the future Well I think she's you know, she's probably disappointed what she's done and I think now she's learned her lesson and she probably, I don't think she'd be a threat to the country but obviously she's going to be checked on all the time you know, I don't know, it, obviously I wouldn't mind her coming back to the Dundalk you know, we've all made mistakes so and do you think that she should be interviewed and monitored when she comes back? Um, to a certain extent, I'd say, yeah, for, for a while anyway. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Oh, I think uh, we have to give her a second chance. Uh, she did make a big mistake, but maybe we all make mistakes. She made her bed, I think she should lay in it. Okay, interesting and mixed views there from people who took time out uh, to speak uh, with Marie Kearns for us in Dundalk yesterday. Michael Reed on on LMFM. LMFM. Let's talk about vaping and if using e-cigarettes is dangerous or not. The advice so far has been conflicting. Dr Angie Brown, consultant cardiologist and medical director with the Irish Heart Foundation, joins us. Good morning to you, Dr Brown, and uh, thanks uh, for your time with us here on the programme this morning. You're probably the only person I can think of at the moment uh, who might read the European Heart Journal, uh, and I'm not sure if you do, uh, but let's talk about uh, some research that was published in uh, that journal from a uh, German university and uh, the advice following on from it is uh, that e-cigarettes are so dangerous and addictive that countries should consider banning them altogether. What's your th- thoughts on this? Uh, the researchers are saying that it, they, they cause damage to the brain, the heart, blood vessels and lungs. Good, uh, good morning, Michael. Thanks for having me on the show. Yes, so as you say, there's a, a recent study which looked at uh, the effects of e-cigarettes on 20 smokers, but uh, but then also looked at the effects of uh, the e-vapor on mice, and they found that in those smokers, uh, 15 minutes after vaping, there was vasoconstriction. So in other words, the arteries in the arm became much stiffer and the heart rate increased. Um, and the rat, the mice work showed that this was due to um, oxidative stress. So basically, the lining of the arteries is damaged, the endothelium, and that's protective. So that's a big concern. There are also some other studies that suggest that 
e-cigarettes can affect cells in the lungs and can cause inflammation. So there are a few studies coming out mm. now. One of the problems with e-cigarettes really is that uh, that whether they're safe or not is really uncertain. We certainly have no long-term studies um, and the effects of tobacco, uh, you know, the very damaging effects, increasing risk of cancer and so on, wasn't seen for really quite some years. So the consensus has, so far really has been that e-cigarettes probably do less damage than uh, smoking tobacco because we know smoking tobacco uh, contains lots and lots of carcinogens, over 7,000 different chemicals uh, in the tobacco smoke. Uh, and we know for sure that smoking uh, causes cancer and, and uh, emphysema, and et cetera, et cetera. But would would one cigarette nearly kill you? I mean, this is uh, a question that seems relevant uh, today, given the experience of a 16-year-old in the UK this week, a 16-year-old by the name of Ewan Fisher, who was rushed to A&E. Doctors say he nearly died from a catastrophic respiratory failure. uh, And they say, vape at your peril. Uh, He went in uh, to this uh, condition after just vaping once, apparently. That's correct. And in in the States, as I'm sure you're aware, there have been 34 deaths related to vaping. Uh, And one of the issues that we would have with the e-cigarettes, they're they're sold by the companies as, um, you know, less harmful. Uh, And this has been translated into a healthier alternative to tobacco smoking. We really need to, you know, make sure that the message gets out that these aren't safe. And we have a great concern because a lot of teenagers are starting to vape because they think that it is safer than um, smoking tobacco. What harm? Um, and, and, and there's a lot of mm. nicotine. Nicotine is highly addictive. So potentially we're going to have a lot of teenagers who are addictive to tobacco. And some of those go on, t- sorry, addicted to mm-hmm. nicotine. And some of those go on and... And, and smoke tobacco. So we really, uh, we really have to advise against any teenagers taking up this as a, a safe alternative because, as you say, there are a number of deaths out there and there is increasing evidence that these can cause harm um, and we don't have no idea what the long-term effects of them are. And the idea of uh, them being flavoured is most questionable, isn't it? Uh, Because uh, if uh, somebody was to take up one of these uh, without the flavours, they might say, what's the point? Uh, But they might actually like the taste of them if they're putting flavours into them. Absolutely. Uh, And that's a big concern that these flavoured products, because they're easier to smoke, they get the kick of the nicotine and the nice flavour. So it increases the um, the likelihood of young people starting with these products. And, and it's a really big problem in schools. We, we, you know, we are doing studies at the moment to see how many uh, teenagers are vaping in Ireland. But in the States, it's, it's, it, there's an epidemic of it. You know, mm. up to 22% of teenagers are vaping. So this is a really big concern for us. Yeah, it's really weird uh, for people who never smoked. I think there's probably a good argument uh, for people to use them in order to give up cigarettes. Is that the point, though, trying to get the balance uh, that they can be good as an alternative uh, nicotine uh, thing so that people can give up, uh, but uh, they shouldn't be used uh, just uh, because people believe uh, that there's no harm in them? That's true, and I do have patients who have managed to give up smoking tobacco. Um, the problem with e-cigarettes that the, the, the Hikwa uh, did a 
did a sort of an analysis of all the different studies and really there isn't even enough evidence to advise this uh, e-cigarettes as a first-line quit tool. Uh, actually, there's better evidence for using nicotine replacements and agents such as vaseline and bupropion mm. to help people quit. But if it, it, it but if it was one or the other, if you had to choose uh, for uh, one of your patients, uh, would you prefer that they smoked cigarettes or that they vaped e-cigarettes? So at the moment, with the evidence that we have at present, I would prefer someone to use e-cigarettes than smoking tobacco for sure, and certainly people's lung function and chest infections does seem to be better than if you're inhaling tobacco smoke. But the studies suggest that if people use e-cigarettes as a quit tool, what happens is they continue using e-cigarettes and they don't actually give up the nicotine habit. Um, so I would be encouraging people to use this as, you know, to, to stop the e-cigarettes as well right. and not continue to use those in the long term, which unfortunately is what a lot of people are doing instead of smoking tobacco. So certainly better than smoking tobacco. We would advise anyone that smokes to quit uh, and use any any anything that they can. There's lots of help out there. Uh, quit.ie, nicotine replacement, talk to your GP um, and so on. Um, uh, I'm not sure if polyuse is the correct term, uh, but I, I think there's a lot of people who are smoking cigarettes and vaping e-cigarettes that they develop a, a habit on top of the existing habit uh, by trying to give up one. Uh, but, That's right. Yeah. That's absolutely right, yes. Okay. Uh, somebody asks, if you're using zero nicotine in the vape, is it still unsafe? It is, and actually the study that we're just talking about, they looked at the effects of the e-vapor without the nicotine. What's the point? What's the point in an e-cigarette without nicotine? Well, I think you can have vaping with other things in it. Mm. You know, I mean, some of the the deaths in the States were related to vaping cannabis. So there's other drugs and other flavors that can be put in the e-cigarettes. But the e-cigarette liquid... See, there's no control of these agents, and that's that's the other issue. So e- the different e-cigarettes have different things in them, but they found glycol, formaldehyde, and in the latest study, there was an aldehyde agent called acrolin, and this this is what was damaging the endothelium. So the it's the vaping um, that actually contains a lot of the inflammatory mediators. Okay. The nicotine on top of that, nicotine is obviously the, the addictive element that will increase your heart rate and your blood pressure, but the vaping liquid causes damage, not, okay. not, not just the nicotine. Alright, uh, we'll uh, leave people uh, to think about that uh, for the moment though. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on the programme. Dr Angie Brown, consultant cardiologist and medical director with the Irish Heart Foundation. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the independent TD in Galway, Noel Grealish, asked uh, the Taoiseach, as you know uh, this week, if uh, Nigerians uh, sending home uh, some uh, 3.54 billion euro uh, over the course of the last eight years had... Uh, come into possession of uh, that money through crime or if it was legitimate money. He's been accused of blatant racism. Let's talk about this with Finnegal Councillor in Navan, Yemi Adenuga. A very good morning to you, Councillor Adenuga, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on the programme. Uh, you were born good in Nigeria. Good morning, Niger- Michael. Thanks you- for having me. You were born in Nigeria yourself, uh, so uh, you'd, yes, know, I was. you'd know a little bit about this. What do you, what, what do you make of uh, the claim uh, that Noel Grealish made and how the Taoiseach has corrected him and 
said that instead of it being 3.54 billion euro over the course of that period, it's actually a figure of 17 million. Well, Michael, you see, this is the kind of dangerous rhetoric that no Grealish is spreading around and is inciting hate amongst the people. And we need to stop and question his intentions. What is his, what is his aim? What is he trying to achieve? This is not the first time he's done this. If you recall in September, he had insinuated that Africans are spongers, and that in itself is quite upsetting. Mm. The loads of Africans who are working hard here were paying their taxes. And then uh, the day before yesterday, he proceeds to zoom into Nigeria. Uh, I, I was made to understand he had actually asked this question previously in a parliamentary question, and he did get an answer. He'd been given the figures from the CSO of 17 million, and then he, he still went ahead to ask with 3.54 billion, which is presented in the World Bank um, figures. Now, let's do a li- if we do a little calculation here, right? Let's even just be logical. If he's saying that it's 3.54 billion over the course of 18 years, figures which we know are not accurate, it would mean then that every single Nigerian in the past 18 eight years would have sent 194 million home. And if you bring that to a year, each person would have sent 24.3 million euros home. And if you look at that per week, it means that each person would have sent 467,000 euros home per mm. week. How does that even make sense? Well, I suppose if you thought for a second all Nigerians were thieves and crooks, uh, maybe it would make sense. Is that what we're meant to believe from what he said? Well, Michael, that, what he's saying then is that I am a crook and a thief. Mm. which is absolutely unacceptable. And it is very, very upsetting. It's unfair for him to throw around such rhetoric and create and, and, and incite people to hate. He certainly has an agenda here. Mm. Now, what that agenda is, I don't know yet, but it's becoming clearer that he certainly has something in his mind. He's going somewhere. He perhaps believes that he can use this as a cheap to gather some political uh, mm. points amongst the people. But look, I do believe that Irish people are smart people that will see through him. Unfortunately, a handful, the handful of the far writers will go ahead with him. And the, the concern then is that they will continue to spread this. And if it's not checked, if it's not stopped, they will, they will start to find disciples in other people. This is a concern. Uh, do you take it as a personal insult? I think it's an insult even to Ireland as a nation. I mean, here is the thing, Michael. Mm. He's, he's, he, it sounds as if he's speaking on behalf of the Irish people. And for every single person who says, yes, he is speaking on behalf of the Irish people, then that gives everybody out here a different perspective of Ireland, the island that we know. If there's a question to be asked, if people don't understand stuff, you ask the question. I mean, he's within his rights to ask a question that he doesn't understand. And the question in itself is, are there measures, are there mechanisms in place to check monies that are sent from outside Ireland? That's the question. Mm. And he did get the answer. So what was the need for him then to zoom into Nigeria and and infer that the money sent to Nigeria are crime money? That's unfair. That's absolutely unfair. It's unfair. Mm. 
So it would concern me then if people say, and look, I have heard a few people say, oh, what he's speaking, especially when he started in Ultra, that what he's speaking is the mind of the people. So is this really, it begs the question, is this the mind of the people that he's speaking? Are we now suddenly a nation that has become so angry that we blame any and everybody for the problems that we have. Yeah. That's not who we are. Well, I, I and we need to begin to think about these things. I, I don't know why he asked that question this week because he was given an answer to that parliamentary question on... Uh, Absolutely, the he was given an answer. I, I, I do he's scrutinising, th- he's mm. stereotyping, he's mm. criticising. That's not fair. Look, if, if they are people, Michael, mm. this, this country has laws in place, yeah. right? If, crim- if he feels that there are certain people whether Nigerians, whether um, white or black or green, it doesn't matter what nationality they are. If they're people who commit crime, they pay for their for their actions. Mm. It's as simple as that. And that's why we have laws in place. Mm. Nobody gets any preferential, preferential treatment. So if any group of people together come together and become a gang or become yeah. a group, and then perpetrate an evil. Mm. They pay for it. Well, people are asking, where did this question come from? Why is he asking this question? Uh, It's a a mystery. It's a mystery as to how... Uh, he decided this was a, a relevant thing to ask in the National Parliament, but it seems as though it might have started on his local radio station. I'm going to play you a little clip of a, an interview that he, he did with his local radio station, Yemi, if I can. Uh, it won't take long. Okay, uh, but uh, You might be interested to hear uh, part of uh, this. He was asked a, a question on Galway Bay, Bay FM uh, by Keith Finnegan. Where does, where does one find $392 million to send from Ireland to another country? That's an issue that's going to have to be addressed. That's an issue that, that, that needs to be addressed by by Parliament and it has to be addressed by the Department and it's an issue I'm going to raise with, uh, with Pascal Dunhill and it's an issue that I will raise with, with revenue. A lot of Irish people out there working hard and then to see where this vast amount of money has been transferred out of our out of our country, where it's coming from, Keith, I can't answer, but this issue and the debate has to start and uh, these issues uh, has to be addressed and if there's people uh, sending money fraudulently out of the country there should be some way to be able to track that well then these people should be arrested and if need be, deported deported overnight. Yeah, that's uh, Noel Grealish uh, speaking to Keith Finnegan on Galway Bay FM. Uh, so he was asked a, a question about Nigerians sending money home to Nigeria uh, and he said uh, he'd bring it further and ask the question uh, at a, a national level. It seems he's done that. Does that make any difference to the story, do you think, Yemi? Here's the thing, right? He'd asked the question in, in, in Parliament. He, mm. I put forward a parliamentary question. Mm. And he got the answer. Mm. He got no, I the understand answer. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do, so do you think though that he was? Co- do you think though that he was? Co- do you think he was? Co- he might have been coming under pressure in Galway. Uh, I mean, when he was asked there, he said, "Oh God, I, I don't know anything about this." Uh, you mentioned Nigeria. I, I, I didn't know anything about this, uh, but I'll go and ask. Uh, do you think that there might have been local pressure on him, Michael? If there are local pressures, there's something called a research. Mm. You research the situation. Yeah. You go to the source, the people who have the answers. He'd previously been given results, answers from the CSO. He can't go to the CSO. As a matter of fact, he should have gone further to the CSO and asked for more figures and clarity as to the processes and the procedures through which the monies are checked and monitored. Mm. That's where you get the answer. Okay. You don't begin to throw figures around then that are 
not accurate. Mm. Nowhere in the answer he was given with the CSO oh, absolutely. did he, did yep. he indicate absolutely. that absolutely. there was 3.54 billion. Mm. That's absolutely ridiculous. And he deliberately throws the figures around to create an atmosphere. It's just unacceptable. It's okay. not right. Yemi, who knows what country he's going to next week? Okay, Yemi, you're uh, uh, locally... Uh, elected public representative uh, and you're a member of Fine Gael. Uh, Fine Gael is uh, the main government party. Uh, Noel Grealish has been condemned to some degree. Uh, should Fine Gael go further and uh, disassociate themselves from Noel Grealish altogether? I believe they should. I believe they should. Because I always say that if you disagree with something then you don't associate with it. It's as simple as that. Thank you indeed for joining us here this morning. That's Fine Gael councillor Yemi Adenuga. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and good morning to everybody listening in. A lot coming in, Michael, in relation to the Lisa Smith interview, both on the back of the clips this morning and also your interview yesterday with Deputy Peter mm. Fitzpatrick. Uh, a listener says, listening into the Vox Pop on the show this morning, it one thing's for certain there won't be a welcome home party in Mahavana more for Lisa Smith or any other establishments that she frequented in Dundalk. I feel that she betrayed her country and her town, says this listener, okay, didn't give a right. name. Yeah, well, some people uh, you spoke to yesterday would agree with that, but quite a lot of people uh, wouldn't. Uh, a lot of people were very sympathetic to her. They really were, Michael. Mm. And it, this was, these were random people that yep. I just stopped on mm-hmm. the street and... Uh, a lot of people felt that she should be given a second chance. There mm-hmm. was still some concern, you know, that she should be monitored and that type of thing, you know, uh, when she comes home. But definitely, I was even surprised yeah. uh, that, that so many did seem to have that sympathy, sympathy for her. Uh, Brendan uh, from Dundalk said that he was annoyed listening to uh, the clip that we play, played from Dundalk and to hear people from other countries who have moved to Ireland saying that Lisa Smith should not be allowed back into Ireland. Lisa Smith is Irish. Mm. She should be welcomed back to her own country and to hear them giving out about her. Who? The people, foreign nationals, as he says. Who? That's his thoughts. Uh, what, what, what's he on about? I, I, I don't know. I, I would have thought that anybody or everybody listening to the, who spoke to you yesterday were foreign nationals or maybe uh, they were all Irish nationals. I don't know anything about them. He says she was born Irish and she should be allowed back in that uh, look at the good that she did in the past when she did work mm. with the Defence Forces who amongst us doesn't make mistakes and he says I'm just very annoyed listening to that Right uh, people shouldn't have opinions is it? <laughs> well, maybe if they're not the same as, as his <laughs> oh, God that's a because well, of an accent is it? Uh, he, believe, he thinks he knows everything about somebody because of their accent is it? I, I don't know Michael. I don't know what's he on about? Uh, another listener got in touch to say and this was on the back of your interview yesterday with Peter Fitzpatrick to say that uh, uh, Peter Fitzpatrick is putting it across as if Lisa Smith was on a holiday in Ibiza I don't think that's right no. she, this comes in from mm-hmm. Jack she yep. chose mm-hmm. to go mm-hmm. to a war torn country it was her choice to go mm. says Jack yep. 
uh, another listener says that in relation to Lisa Smith, I think that Peter Fitzpatrick doesn't realise the amount of worry that people have about Lisa Smith Mm. coming back because we don't know if she has changed since she went over there, what brought her over there in the first place Mm. and what has changed since that. Uh, And Peter Fitzpatrick says he doesn't know the answer to that question. I did ask him uh, if he knew or if uh, the family had spoken to him or if the family knew about it. He he didn't know on any of uh, those counts uh, and uh, I don't think it's fair to say that he was suggesting that she was there on a holiday as if she was in Ibiza or somewhere else uh, for that matter. He did say she went, it's very questionable why she went and what she was doing there but she'll come back and she'll be the subject of an investigation. She wants the opportunity to come back and answer those questions uh, but he wasn't uh, giving a verdict on what the outcome of that should be. He was saying Mm. that she should be brought back and questioned uh, and let the Gardaí decide then. David from Navin says that Lisa Smith is someone who supported people that butchered Christians in ISIS-held territory. That is the main issue. That's her side of the story, Mm. says David. Okay, uh, there's a a photograph uh, that uh, looks very familiar to me in uh, the Irish Mirror uh, this morning. Uh, Let's go to the phones uh, to find out why Kira Courtney is on uh, the line. Kira is now a communications executive and uh, worked for some time on uh, this programme, indeed, in uh, this radio station. Good morning to you, Kira, and uh, thanks for joining us. As I say, there's a photograph uh, that's uh, familiar to me of a, a pothole Oh, and there's a photograph of you beside it. <laughs> yeah, I thought you were referencing my picture, Michael. <laughs> um, basically, Michael, I was in um, RD, my hometown, on Saturday night. Went to visit a friend of mine in Rockfields Close. Uh, didn't really know where her house was, so I was driving particularly slowly around the estate and drove into a pothole. Arrived at her house and realised that the house is starting to lose pressure in the tyre because obviously the car started telling me it's a very high-tech car, Michael. Uh, it's only new. Really? And I'm very proud of it. Yeah. Oh, very good. It's only five weeks old oh, and uh, it started telling me that there was pressure in the car, the pressure was starting to be lost in the tyre. Mm. Started panicking, you know yourself, and then the next morning came out, had a look at the tyre and realised that it was completely busted. Um, had to get some help from my dad and my brother to come in and get me the car, get the car home, all of that. But we did a little bit of investigating ourselves and we measured the depth of the pothole, which yeah. is basically like a crater in the ground. Mm. And uh, I, I can see it going into a puddle of water. You've got yeah. a, a measuring tape going in. What does it read? It's over five inches in depth, Michael. Well, so it is a big, big pothole in the middle of a housing estate. Mm. So... Um, as you can imagine, was very annoyed uh, about the car. Very, very lucky I didn't do any damage and very, very lucky I didn't lose control of the car or anything mm. like that. So obviously there is a lot of like luck that was involved as well. But I did a little bit of further digging and realised that um, the council don't have charge of Rockfield Close. There is a thing that the councils can do, which is called taking in charge of estates around the country. But uh, Rockfield Close is not one of them that the council have control over. Uh, the residents don't pay maintenance fees. So they're not paying maintenance fees. The council aren't taking care of it. And the builder is, is no longer in, in business. So my question was, and still is, is... This is like a no man's land, basically. Mm-hmm. There's no one that I can actually complain to about this pothole because nobody is responsible for that area. And there's no one that actually can do anything about it. Okay. And like, I was conscious of the fact that I'm not 
coming on the radio to give out about the price of the tyre, to give out about that I have to get a new tyre, even though that's all incredibly inconvenient and very annoying. I'm more thinking about the bigger picture, the health and safety aspect of this, where you have children on bikes, cyclists on bikes, Mm. going round and could seriously do serious damage to themselves and others. Okay. Well, I suppose all we can say at the moment is if motorists are in Rockfield close, uh, they can expect Mm. driving conditions uh, that would uh, be similar to Beirut uh, with craters uh, of five inches deep. Thanks for joining us uh, this morning, Kira Courtney. Now let's uh, talk about uh, the impeachment proceedings against Donald Trump. You're talking about the witch hunt? Is that what you mean? Is that what you're talking about? I I hear it's a joke. I haven't watched... I haven't watched for one minute because I've been with the president, which is much more important as far as I'm concerned. Uh, this is a sham and uh, shouldn't be allowed. It was a uh, situation that was caused by people that shouldn't have allowed it to happen. I want to find out who is the whistleblower, because the whistleblower gave a lot of very incorrect information, including my call with the president of Ukraine, which was a perfect call and highly appropriate. And he wrote something that was much different than the fact. Uh, I want to find out why the IG, why would he have presented that when, in fact, all he had to do is check the call itself and he would have seen it. I'm going to be releasing, I think, on Thursday, a second call, which actually was the first of the two. And you'll make a determination as to what you think there. Uh, But I've heard just a report. They said it's uh, all third-hand information. Nothing direct at all. It can't be direct because I never said it. And all they have to do is look very, very simply at the transcript. If you read the transcript, this was analyzed by great lawyers. Uh, this was analyzed by Greg Jarrett. It was analyzed by Mark Levin. It was analyzed by everybody. They said this statement that I made, the whole uh, call that I made with the president of Ukraine was a perfect one. Perfect one. I love that. I really do. Uh, that's uh, Donald Trump explaining. What did they say about politicians when they're explaining? Come on, tell me. <laughs> I think he's in trouble. I think he's in think trouble. So. Sounds like he's uh, doing a, a lot of explaining. The more explaining you do, the more trouble you're in. <laughs> we'll see. We'll mm. see. Michael, you were talking yesterday um, to the Irish Property Owners Association, uh, I think, were you, uh, Margaret McCormick? Because we saw some reaction in relation mm-hmm. to comments that were made uh, regarding landlords and a listener uh, text in to say a house, this is a comment I think Michael that you may have made, a house that someone has bought for you typical anti-landlord bias from Michael Reed. landlords cannot offset any personal work they carry out on the property as someone once said try it sometime getting calls at all hours of the night seven days a week about this, that and the other and expected to fix things within five minutes of being contacted tenants are generally treated like royalty by most landlords and where landlords have to take the risk of taking loans out and worrying about not just the property market, not just the property itself and the market Mm. but about being taken advantage of by the tenant. Okay, well if the average rent in Louth or Meath at the moment is around 1500 uh, is uh, that what people are are paying in mortgage repayments and if they're not, is somebody not buying the house for them? Paddy and Kell says that only a fool would have a house for letting in this country. It's a mugs game. Michael Reed is on the wrong side of the road because I know renting out a house is like hell on earth. Trying to maintain the house as the tenants don't appreciate or keep the house in order. They make a complete mess of the house. OK, I wonder why they're doing it, if that's the way they feel. Um, 
you know. I know, sell up. Sell up, yeah. Yeah, yeah. If that's the way they feel, uh, I presume uh, it's because it's an investment uh, that uh, at the end of it all, they'll have an asset uh, yes. because they'll have a house that's worth three or 500 or 700 or a million or whatever it is. Uh, and uh, somebody else will have paid for it. Will it, will it pay the mortgage for mm, them? Yeah. Yes. OK, well, we'll finish on that, Michael. OK, thanks for that, Marie. Thanks to everybody who has been in touch. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850-715-958. Michael Reed on LMFM. Forty investigates last night uh, spoke uh, to three men who say uh, they were abused as uh, children in former scouting organisations. Uh, final report into the allegations of child sexual abuse in Catholic Boy Scouts of Ireland and the Sco- Scout Association of Ireland is uh, due to be completed in February of next year. It was raised in the all yesterday, the programme that is, and indeed uh, the case of uh, David O'Brien, who uh, featured in uh, the RTE Investigates uh, programme, the Primetime Investigates programme last night. O'Brien is a former scout leader and convicted sex offender uh, who has admitted to sexually abusing up to 60 boys, most of whom were young cub scouts. He evaded justice by moving around uh, in the 70s and 80s. Paul O'Toole, a victim who O'Brien pleaded guilty to sexually assaulting, says, that was the moment my childhood ended. It was where a normal childhood should have went on, but mine stopped. And Colin Bracken, who was victimised by two leaders, uh, including O'Brien, and that abuse was his first sexual experiences. And he says, they shattered my soul. They killed my soul. And Taoiseach, in that briefing document, uh, it's clear files went missing. It took years and years for Scouting Ireland to commence this investigation. But it, they do confirm that there's indications in their own internal review of extensive, extensive, prolonged and organised child sexual abuse and how adult members, and I'm quoting, who preyed on children were protected. There were repeated failures to take effective action and so on. And what I'm essentially saying, t shirt there's about 407 sexual, alleged sexual abuse complaints. 247 alleged perpetrators. There is, without question, Teacher, and Geoffrey Shannon agrees with those uh, abused former scouts. The government, and I'm asking you to give a commitment now that the government will have to establish a statutory inquiry, independent inquiry, uh, that will be transparent and independent uh, given the scale uh, of the abuse that has occurred and what has been revealed through this programme. And I would ask if the government is prepared to do that. Michal Martin, TD, the leader of uh, the Fianna Fáil party speaking in uh, the Dáil yesterday. Maeve Lewis, executive uh, director of uh, the One and Four group, is on uh, the line with us. A very good morning to you, Maeve, and thanks uh, for joining us. Do you think Michal Martin is going in the right direction there, calling for an independent statutory inquiry? Good morning, Michael. Yes, I do, in fact, very much support what Michal Martin was asking for yesterday. I mean... Anybody who, when I watched that program last night, I really had a, a deja vu experience. I felt just as I would have felt years ago when the first indications of sexual abuse within the Catholic Church emerged. And I mean, nobody in their right minds would have accepted that in, um, an internal review by the Church would have revealed the full truth of what happened um, in that organisation. And likewise, um, you know, I think given the huge numbers involved and the devastation that was caused by the abuse, 
given the patterns that emerged last night um, of scout leaders being protected, being moved from one scout pack to another, um, files going missing, um, allegations not being passed on to the statutory authorities, um, the years and years it took for this internal review to begin, well then, I think huge questions remain and and that's the deja vu feeling uh, I, I think a, a lot of people certainly of a, a certain age uh, would have uh, felt we've heard a, a lot of this before or exactly. stories very similar to it uh, and uh, it uh, appears to be a pattern uh, of institutional abuse does it? Oh, it is absolutely a pattern of institutional abuse. If you look at, I mean, we, um, you know, some, somewhere around 50 um, sex offenders have been identified. We don't know if there are more. And while a lot of the abuse refers back to abuse in the 70s, 80s, up into the 90s, um, we don't know if the child protection measures in place are rigorous enough. We don't know that many of those men are probably still alive. Where are they now? Do they have access to children? Are they in other organisations? Um, so until there's a full statutory inquiry that identifies the full scale of what happened in Scouting Ireland, mm. then I think we are really letting down all those men, um, boys and men, um, whose lives have been destroyed. I mean, mm. it is chilling to hear the personal stories of the men. I mean, mm. These are the stories we hear every day here at One in Four, and it absolutely confirms what we have always said, that the impact, the devastating impact of sexual abuse doesn't stop when the abuse stops. And and very upsetting to see the men get upset themselves uh, and talk about how they thought they were the only one, and had they known that others were at risk, they'd have come forward, and then when they did realise that in one man's circumstance, another 60 children had complaints about the same abuser uh, who we heard about there, uh, that they felt guilty themselves uh, for not having coming forward. Well, um, I mean, that is often the case with children who've been sexually abused when they grow up, be the abuse within the family or within an organisation. But I mean, I think we need to send out a clear message. It is never, ever the responsibility of the child. Um, and I mean, it is typical of sex offenders that the child will believe they are the only victim because very often the grooming process creates, you know, a, a very special, inverted commas, relationship. Mm. And uh, the children believe they are the only one, even in families where other siblings are abused. But it was horrifying to hear a couple of those men last night talk about feeling guilty and feeling responsible for children who were abused after their abuse had stopped. And, I mean, it is never, ever the child's responsibility. And wasn't it peculiar that other people uh, who weren't being abused or or weren't abusing, but adults knew what was going on? Well, it's not peculiar. I mean, this is a pattern we have seen before, and we continue to see here as one in four, for example, in families where other adults do know what's happening, or perhaps in a neighbourhood where somebody is sexually abusing and lots of people know what's going on um, or where a sports coach we've seen that before in some of the big scandals for example with Swim Ireland and, and some of the other sporting mm. organisations so you know it, it is almost as if there is a culture that if we have concerns we don't act upon them and I mean one of the boys um, spoke, one of the men rather now um, it concerned abuse in Middleton the abuser was a scoutmaster, but he was also a teacher. He um, was high status in the community. And 
you know, the sense was that he was absolutely untouchable and that if anybody, any of the children had come forward, but that adults too mm. are often afraid to challenge somebody who is in that position of power and authority. And that is a culture we absolutely need to break if we're going to keep children safe. Uh, and uh, the Catholic Church uh was a factor in this and used as a way of threatening people who may have come forward otherwise. Well, that's true. But, I mean, it's also clear that abuse was happening in um, the Scouting Association of Ireland, which would be associated with the Church of Ireland. So, I mean, it is not confined to, to the Catholic or the Catholic Boy Scouts. Um, but very often the Catholic Boy Scouts were very much intertwined with local church. And that, again, would have, I suppose, the, the, the power and the authority of the church would have helped to protect the offenders. Mm. Uh, the Taoiseach uh, said that he, he would uh, speak with Minister Sapone uh, about the idea of holding a, a statutory inquiry, uh, but that what was most uh, important uh, was uh, that uh, criminal action would be taken against people if uh, they were guilty of crimes and he didn't want to do anything that might impede uh, those uh, investigations. Uh, how do you feel about what the Taoiseach said? Well, look, it's very, very important if... Um it is possible at this late stage to convict people for the terrible crimes they have committed. But, you know, the, the uh, four or five uh, statutory inquiries into the Irish Catholic Church were able to go ahead um, and at the same time uh, criminal cases would have been operating and there are ways in the in a statutory inquiry to make sure that the collection of evidence there does not um, interfere with any criminal investigation that may be happening. So, I mean, if we were to wait for criminal investigations to be completed, um, it is very likely that that programme last night is going to encourage other survivors to come forward. Mm. We've already had some contacts here this morning. Really? Um, so, you know, we could be waiting 100 years for a statutory inquiry if we were to wait until all possible uh, criminal avenues had been uh, pursued. Okay, uh, and I suppose uh, it's uh, a duplicate. Uh, you talked about Deja Vu earlier on uh, in terms of what you were watching and the facts as they unfolded, uh, but uh, pretty similar in terms of uh, the response. When people see uh, this kind of uh, thing on the television or read it about it in the papers or hear it on the radio, uh, it uh, triggers something in them and uh, prompts them to come forward. Uh, you've heard from people you say this morning. Sure, and I mean, it won't only be people who are involved in Scouting Ireland, mm. it will be people who are abused in all sorts of different contexts. But Michael, the other thing is, um, you know, the laws and so on on child protection have been strengthened, seriously strengthened, um, since the last decade when all the church revelations came out. But I mean, it is so important that any organisation um, in where children are involved, be it a sporting organisation or education or cultural, that really, really good child protection governance is in place and that the chances of these type of patterns that we've seen over and over again um, should, should never be repeated um, mm. and, and that is what is, is, is vital. But also that all adults in this country have a responsibility for child protection and if we have concerns, be it in our own families mm. or in our neighbourhoods or in our workplaces or in organisations we're involved in, then we need to have the guts to actually uh, talk to, for example, a child protection social worker into a or to the local authority. Okay, you had a, a funding deficit uh, last year in one and four, which uh, stopped you seeing people. Are you in a position to support people now? Um, unfortunately, uh, 
we, you know, resources are very, very tight and we always have very long waiting lists. Um, Michael, we don't have a waiting list for our advocacy programme where we can support people to make notifications to TUSLA or indeed to get in touch with the Gordhi. Um So, you know, but, but I would urge people, you know, to reach out. There is support, even if it's not always immediately available. And it is a huge issue. I know that all the organisations dealing with adult survivors of child sexual abuse have very long waiting lists and... Um, you know, I have written to the Taoiseach and to the Minister for Health asking for a very small increase, 5% increase in our HSE grant for next year. I haven't heard yet, but, um, you know, um, it is a huge concern when we can't provide timely support. Um, we know, for example, last year um, we worked with um, nearly 800 people, but uh, just over 100 of those we met for the first time. And mm. um 27 of those people had attempted to take their own lives before we ever met them. So we always wonder when somebody is on a very long waiting list, you know, are they actually safe or will they be alive when we manage to ring them? Okay. Well, they can get advice by making contact with you. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. 1in4.ie is the website and uh, the telephone number is a Dublin number 01662 Maeve, thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. Thank you, Michael. Good thank you indeed. Maeve Lewis, Executive uh, Director of 1in4. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's talk about uh, the Slain Bypass. The what, you may say? Uh, well, uh, a lot of people uh, will remember talk of a bypass of uh, the village of Slain. Of course, it's been scuppered for years. Uh, there will be a new effort, it seems, uh, to realise a bypass of uh, the village and an emerged preferred route will be on display in uh, the Cunningham Arms Hotel from 2 o'clock this afternoon. Let's uh, get some details about what's being proposed now. Fianna Fáil Councillor Wayne Harding is on the line. A very good morning to you, Wayne. Good morning, Michael. Uh, what can you tell us about this route that is now the preferred route? Yes, well, it's going back to the east, um, as as was refused in 2012, with modifications to address the issues that for refusal. It's a 3.4 kilometre route. Um, the bridge that would cross the river is 680 metres. It will be 680 metres to the east of the of the of the now 400 uh, year old bridge that that, that uh, crosses the river for Slane. Right, uh, and uh, why is it a thought that this may be acceptable? Well, because a number of reasons. The, 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 the new route has, has uh, shifted further away from the, from the uh, buffer zone around the World Heritage Site that is Brunabonia. And also, the refusal wasn't on the basis of it being too close the last time, is that all options weren't looked at the last time in, in relation to how um, uh, HTV bans and so on could help um, alleviate Slane's problem. And 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 not not need a bypass. Mm. The the planner, they both Meekant Council and the TIO have now um, looked at all options available and believe that this is the only way that can solve Slane's horrific traffic problem. So the planning application will have to be made. Uh, in uh, two strands, I, I take it. One is uh, to win the argument uh, that all options have been exhausted for an alternative uh, and that it's not possible uh, to take heavy traffic out of uh, the village without a, a bypass. And then the other is the application for the bypass itself. Yeah, and you, you're exactly correct. And there was a lot of argument around um, the, the other the other roads. 
that could be used, the M3 and the M1, and just ban trucks from slaying, and they'll, uh, they'll automatically use that. But the, the, the work that has been done since the refusal, in two, which is 2012 now, it's, far, it's been going on far too long. You were saying it's a new effort has been made, but really it, it, it started as soon as the last refusal um, happened. And um, the, the M1 is... is, is um, hugely increasing in traffic um, and the, the, they've looked at regional routes, all the connections between the M3 and the M1 and, and the massive amount of increases on those roads. Um, should, there, should there be a way of avoidance without a slain bypass? And they've come up with the conclusion that we must build it. Also, the N2 itself is becoming increasingly unfit for purpose. For many, many years, it was just about slain. Now it's the whole way along. You hear a lot of talk. It's LMFM and Loud is RDE has a problem. Slain has a problem. The Primestown Junction is constantly gridlocked. So the N2 in itself needs to be upgraded, not just slain. Slain is only part of it. If this bypass is ever built... Uh, what difference will well, it make? I, I believe it will be. And I okay, think, well, let's imagine. And I do, I do, I'm sorry yeah. to interrupt you. I, yeah. do, I do know that people are saying we'll never see it. Mm. And the more people that say they'll never see it, well, then they never will. And I, I, it's my job to make sure that we will. Okay, okay. Well, let's be optimistic then. Let's assume yeah. that it will be built uh, because uh, it uh, undoubtedly would make a, a huge difference uh, to the lives of people in the village uh, and undoubtedly a, a huge difference to people who drive uh, in the locality. Uh, can you put that into context? Well, the best way, I think, is is to explain that every child in Slane Village must enter the N2 to go to their, to go to their national school. That's every single one um, and, and share the, the nearly uh, 20,000 uh, vehicular units that, that pass by their school every day. And that means, and, and there's a lot of people driving to school very short distances because they will not allow a young child of that age onto the N2 to get to there. And there is footpaths, but uh, there's constant danger. And also maybe this is a good example. We've had a huge amount of roadworks over the last number of months in Slane Village um, because literally not just the road surface when people look at road surfacing anywhere it's it's just another road surface there's a few potholes after coming this was deep deep trenches dug because the, because the heavy traffic had literally pulverized the streets of Slane away and and its drainage system and and that took months and that impeded really affected everybody's uh, commute not just not just the people of Slane who were most affected but anybody who passes through the village on a daily basis would, Pope, would local people believe uh, that it might save lives? Well, okay, that's, that's another, that's, that's the, one of the biggest issues that's there. And the way it will be pointed out, and I know that there's people who will say that Slane doesn't need a bypass, which is, in my opinion, completely bonkers. But they will say there hasn't been an accident. But on a daily basis, things are happening, and, and people see it every day. I, was at, I, I took the bus to Dublin yesterday myself, and there was somebody there, and I said, and we... You stand there for 10 minutes. And he just said, the last time I stood here, 40 HGVs passed me, mm. along with all of the other mixed-use traffic. Um, it, something will happen. It, and, but the impediments that were put in place in 2001, <clears throat> probably when I became active in relation to the same bypass, for so that almost 20 years ago, all those restrictions, all those huge gantries, all the anti-skid, the kilometres of anti-skid, all of that stuff was supposed to be temporary 20 years ago. Mm. 
Uh, yeah, well, I mean, and, and if you don't, if you don't report a serious accident, well, then people's lives in Slain are just get on with it. Well, well, it's not good enough, and it's not fair, and it's a national primary route. There should be, it shouldn't be in a small village. Yeah, but there's been more than twenty deaths, has has there not? I mean, over the years, it's twenty three deaths. The last one is in twenty. Yeah. It was in two thousand and one, mm. and the most serious incident where it, it was a miracle that there was no death was two thousand and nine. Mm. Just a few, a mm. uh, few short weeks before. Um, the local elections of that time when I got elected first and um, the, the, the devastation and, and the hurt that was felt after that accident drove me to go well, well I have to keep fighting for this because if something like this happens again um, it falls on people with responsibility It's incredible to think uh, that people could be alive uh, and people contend that 23 people may have lived had the village been bypassed uh, but it hasn't uh, and it's encountered one objection after another undoubtedly it will face more objections this bypass proposed I would I would imagine so for whatever reason that people might think uh, they should object but um, I, I all I can do is fully supported and there are many many people around saying who will fight really hard to do that and I would encourage and that's the whole idea of coming on this morning we're actually I've left a meeting in Dulik and they're just about to finish up presenting to us what will be presented for six mm. hours in Slane today and I would ask people to go in there have a look at it have their say and it's an it's a an emerging route but really, this is along the lines of it. It may change, but only slightly. What's being presented is a is a hundred meter corridor that could reduce to about fifty or sixty meters. That will tell you the intricacies. But the point is, get as many people into the Cunningham Arms Hotel between two and six today. Have a look at, make your opinion, and drive to make it work this time. Yeah, well, I think a lot of people were behind it last time, weren't they? Locally, uh, there was a, a lot of objection from outside of uh, the area, and uh, that could uh, continue to be the case. Uh, I mean, I think there was some local objection as well, but generally the objection came from people uh, outside of the area and you could expect objections to come from very far afield. Uh, you could even uh, envisage objections coming from UNESCO. Well, well, that's the good thing about this application. Um, the TII and the County Council have engaged uh, the work of a World Heritage expert. So that's going to, and that was a reason for refusal the last time. That's included in this. You are absolutely correct. People have the right all over this country to to object to whatever planning application is made, and that itself uh, is very frustrating for people in Slane and. I have just gone through my third election on the basis that if somebody votes for me and um, the people of Slane came out in great numbers again this summer and voted for me on the basis that I've been fighting for a Slane bypass. Mm. And there's very strong support within the village. And people really need to look at themselves if, they're, if they don't use Slane on a daily basis and yet feel, feel they need to object to it. Uh, am I right in... Uh, thinking that already there's concern about uh, the bridge that's being proposed for this bypass, uh, that uh, uh, there's concern about the scale of it, uh, that it's very big. Well, I, I, well they, they, that's the first I've heard of that one. I, I no doubt that. Um, but again, the, this is this is the, this is the emerging uh, emerging um, route. Um, these everything along the way can, will will be subject to change. And um, there has to be a bridge that will go across the river. Some people, no matter what size it is, will 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 find that uh, too big. Or whatever, but you but you go you make your submissions, but the but the road needs to be built. 
Okay, well, people can and see... A bridge, and a bridge must go across the river. All right, whatever size it is. Uh, otherwise, yeah. uh, it's not a bypass. Uh, but uh, we'll... Uh, yeah, no, absolutely, and it needs mm. to facilitate... It needs to facilitate what is an increasing problem the whole way along the N2. Okay, but it, it, it's a much wider stretch of uh, the river uh, where uh, this new route is uh, in comparison to the last uh, proposal, isn't it? I, uh, yes, with the way with the way that it have changed, it, yes, it is. Um, but at the same time, it is still they've still gone to the to the to the part of the river that at least impacts on the SEA that is along the the Boyne Valley. Okay, the special area of conservation. conservation. Uh, Sorry, is, uh, I did use that. Yeah, my apologies. Yeah. All right. Okay. Thank you indeed uh, for Thank joining you. us. People can see the route uh, themselves, the preferred route uh, that is, uh, uh, at two o'clock uh, and right uh, through until late uh, this evening. If you're in Slane, uh, it's uh, available for you to go in uh, and uh, talk uh, to the officials as well in uh, the Cunningham Arms Hotel in Slane. Michael Reed on LMFM. At least seven sex workers have been attacked and robbed over the course of the last month by gangs of men. Gardaí say it followed appointments that were made with these sex workers on the internet and we're joined by Amanda Keane who's Policy and Communications Manager with Ruama. Ruama is a group that offers support to women affected by prostitution, sex trafficking and other forms of commercial sexual exploitation. Good morning to you, Amanda, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, what do you know about uh, these uh, attacks? So what we know is, like you said, um, there have been a number of attacks carried out on individuals in prostitution over the last few weeks. And the Gardaí came to us um, over the past week to let us know about it. So we sent out to, uh, an alert to a number of the individuals that we work with um, to let them know that this was happening and, and to come forward if it had happened to them already. So what we know is that the the attackers found the individuals in online advertising sites uh, mm. for people in prostitution. They made appointments, they posed as punters um, or sex buyers, and they went to the locations where the individuals were, and then they attacked them and they took their money. So as far as we know, thousands of euros have been stolen. Um, now, what we also think is that because of the way the attacks were coordinated, that there seems to be this potential of an organised criminality element behind it all um, because the individuals knew where to seek out the, the, the people in prostitution themselves and when they went to the locations um, they also knew where to seek the money. Mm. So we would fa- we would hear from women that we work with um, that a lot of the time that their pimps or their traffickers will direct them where to hide the cash uh, in the location to avoid risk of, of, of it being stolen by punchers for example um, but these people knew where, to, where the money was hidden so you know, we know that the sex trade in Ireland is highly organised. There's a massive criminal element behind it. Um, so, you know, it seems to us that this is just another strand of that. Mm. So, I mean, I think what this case does is it exposes the violence that's in prostitution, the crime that's behind it. Um, we work with over 300 women per year. I would say the vast majority of them, if not all of them, have gone through some form of physical or sexual violence or assault. So this case exposes that. But what's reassuring in this is that these seven people have felt uh, comfortable enough to come forward and safe enough to come forward, which wouldn't have happened years ago where people wouldn't have been believed. Mm. Um, So what we see now with the legislation, especially since 2017, is that the person in prostitution themselves has been decriminalised, whereas all those around them who exploit them, and that includes the buyers, the pimps, the traffickers, these are the ones that the law is targeting. So people themselves are feeling comfortable enough um, 
to come forward and to report crimes because there's more of a victim-centred approach being taken now than ever. And I, I guess that takes us back to what I said at uh, the beginning of our conversation, which was that at least seven sex workers have been uh, attacked mm-hmm. in this way because uh, we know about them because they came forward. Now, Gardaí mm-hmm. uh, say there's no consequence for any of them. Uh, the seven mm-hmm. of them uh, are not in trouble, nor will they be. Uh, uh, but they're uh, anxious to get that message out to other sex workers uh, because uh, they're wondering if other people have been subject to these attacks. For sure. I think that people in prostitution, oftentimes they don't realise that there are support services out there for them. And that includes on Garda Tiacona. Now, the Garda have um, a dedicated unit within the National Protective Services Bureau, which is Operation Quest, which has been going for years. Um, and they are tasked with the remit of organised prostitution. So these are the, the, the people who see it every single day, um, the, the organised criminality that's behind the sex trade and the vulnerabilities of the people that are involved. So they're there to support them, whether it's, um, you know, whether they've been mm-hmm. trafficked or whether they have been controlled by someone else, whether they experience violence by sex buyers, whatever it is, they're there. Um, and also support services like ourselves. Um, I mean, we're the only dedicated NGO working with women in prostitution in Ireland. So I just want the message to go out as well that if women or other individuals um, feel they need support whether that's in reporting the crime or in the aftermath of the crime um, that we're there for them as well so uh, just okay. to put out there that our contact details are on our website rohama.ie and also if women would, if individuals would like a, a confidential call we can do that as well if they just retext the word REACH which is R-E-A-C-H to 5100, they'll get a call back. Okay, 5100. Uh, what advice are, are, are you giving uh, to sex workers uh, to try and avoid becoming a, a subject of an attack like this? Uh, because uh, this, uh, whether it's intentional or not, uh, indirectly sends out a, a message that there's uh, people who have large amounts of cash uh, who are trying to stay below the radar, afraid of the law, if you like, uh, and are pretty vulnerable, uh, and uh, they're there for the taking. Um, we would say that, I suppose, like I said already, prostitution is so dangerous and so violent that it's very hard for people to put safeguards in. If um, if there are individuals who come in, you, you do not know who is going to come through that door um, when there's an appointment made by you or for you um, for prostitution. So it's so inherently dangerous. Um, what we would say to women who or individuals who can control some agency who can exert some agency or control within the situation that they're in, that as much as they can, that they stick to uh, punchers that they know, punchers that are regular, um, mm. you know, so that they, they feel more comfortable. Um, we would also say that to take the calls themselves as much as they can when appointments are being made. Um, a lot of the time, I mean, most of the women that we work with, they at some point or another have been under the control of an agency, for example, or a third-party organiser. So these are the ones that feel the calls when the punters put them in. Um, so it's very hard to know who's at the end of the line, who's at the end of the phone, who's going to come in that door. Um, but, you know, ultimately we think if people feel unsafe um, or if they, they're, they're looking for more advice on how to manage their safety, um, you know, that to get in touch with us, that there are supports there, that the guardian are there as well. Um, if people are feeling at risk of crime or have been victims of crime, the agencies are out there um, willing to support the women. Okay. So that's an important message to get out. And undoubtedly to give some consideration to what they do with money and where they put cash. Yes, to, to, yeah, to, yeah. to whatever extent they can. Um, you know, a lot of the time the women themselves, they won't have it themselves. Uh, it's taken by the organisers. Um, so... They, they wouldn't be able to exert that kind of control. There are some uh, transactions that are also done online. Mm-hmm. 
um, through different platforms. Okay. So, yeah, but as much as they can to, to just take precautions and <laughs> the message yeah. needs to go out there to individuals that um, are thinking of exerting any kind of violence or crime um, towards an individual in prostitution, that there are, there is laws in place um, that they will be held accountable under the legislation. Okay, thank you indeed. Amanda Keane, Policy and Communications Manager with Ruama. That's all we've time for. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.